Uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to uh, invite uh, Thomas Rofer to, uh, to give the uh, introductory talk here. Uh, Thomas and I have been involved in RoboCup uh, soccer for, for many years. Uh, Thomas uh, has been heavily involved in uh, the German team and later on several teams and uh, now the uh, Bremen team or B-Human team. Uh, and these teams have been, almost since their inception, uh, always performing at a very high level and in addition have always been uh, teams that have been heavily involved in the research around RoboCup. So if you go back to RoboCup symposiums, you go this year or you go in previous years, you'll find many uh, papers and other collaborators there. Uh, the team has done extremely well and the uh, Be Human team in the last three years has been quite clearly the uh, top team in the competition and has, has won the competition uh, quite clearly. So it's a, it's a great deal of pleasure to uh, welcome you here, Thomas, and we look forward to your talk. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Hello, everybody. So uh, I, today I want to give um, a little bit of insight in what it requires to play, make Humanoid robots play soccer. So uh, I will talk about our team. Uh, we play with the NOW, as shown over there. And I think the most students here have worked with the NOW in the summer school. And, um, but this also applies uh, to other leagues in RoboCup that play with humanoid robots. So I will start with a little video. So that's actually the beginning of the final in this year's RoboCup in Istanbul in the Standard Platform League. Uh, we use the now robots to play soccer. So in this league, the idea is that everybody uses the same robots and you only have to implement the software. So only have to implement the software. And um, yeah, before the kickoff, the teams have to walk uh, onto the field to their kickoff positions and uh, there's already a lot of stuff involved to make them do that because uh, they have this, uh, these two cameras in their head uh, of which only can one be used at the same time and they have to use the cameras to see the objects on the field and to localize on the field so that they can find their, their kickoff positions and um, they have 45 seconds to reach these positions, which is easy during the first kickoff because then the teams are on different sides, but later it's a little bit more difficult. And uh, well, this first kickoff of the final shows how quick goals can be scored. So we play in blue and the op opponents, it's the now devils, they play in red and that was the first goal, so. <laughs> um, this little video here shows that it also can take a lot longer uh, until there is a chance to kick at the goal. So this was from the semi-final against the team from Leipzig. There were actually quite a large number of German teams now. So, uh, but... Um, yeah, you can... Sometimes you just hit the goal post. And uh, this was a funny situation because the operator of the so-called game controller that uh, sends the referee decisions to the robots pressed the wrong button. So it pressed the finished button. So, and then all robots stopped. But uh, this was very well implemented by both teams because they just continued to play after he uh, pressed the play button again. So next chance to score a goal. The goalkeeper is actually quite good. And in the way. So, still save this one. Ball is placed back. 
and you, you'd see the time over there. So I, I think it took nearly eight minutes until finally there was a real chance to score that goal. So now the goalkeeper is confused and goal is scored. So and there's a lot of software in, in involved in this to make robots play soccer like this. So, uh, yeah, what do you have to do to control a soccer robot? Um, we separate the whole system in five, yeah, sub-areas. The first one is perception. Um, that's the, the main question is, what does this robot see in one image? So it gets 30 image per, uh, images per second. What's, what information is in one image? So that's perception for us. Then there's world modeling, um, where we answer questions that can only be answered if you look at several images uh, in a sequence. It's like, where am I? So where's the robot on the field? Where are objects currently not perceived? So, I mean, if the ball is somewhere and you look away, and uh, it, it will not disappear. So it will probably still be there unless another robot kicks it away. So you can also have an idea where objects are if you cannot perceive them. And, uh, and this is especially important for the ball, uh, what speeds do obje objects have? We currently only estimate uh, the speed for, for the ball, and that's important for the goalkeeper, because it has to decide when to dive to uh, catch a ball. And uh, since these robots are a little bit fragile, it's also very important not to dive too often, so, because the robot can break if you do that. Then there's behavior control. That's uh, to decide what to do. So you basically have the information, where are the objects in the world, how fast they are, what do I have to do to score goals? And then um, there's what we call sensing. That's related to perception. That's basically what the internal sensors tell me. So perception is mainly about the external sensors, such as uh, the camera. And sensing is about the internal sensors. For example, am I lying on the ground or am I standing upright or things like that. And then there's motion control. So basically, I mean, the, what the behavior control decides has to be executed. So the robot has to walk, kick, stand up, or uh, look around. I mean. Basically, you have to control the head to, to see certain things on the field. So, and this is, in our system, is done in two different threads. Uh, one is called cognition, and it's, it uh, is executed whenever a new image arrives. And on the now, there are 30 images per second. So we process all 30 images per second, and everything shown there is calculated 30 times per second. And then there's the, the other thread, it's called motion. It, it runs at 100 hertz, and uh, it performs the sensing part because uh, the now provides 100 sets of sensor data uh, per second, and the motion control is executed at that speed. So motion control, the output is basically 21 joint angles. Uh, and we have to compute them 100 times per second. So basically, that's, that's our software system here. So there are these two threads, cognition and motion. There's a third thread called debug that's only for developing. Um, and that one can have a TCP for, uh, connection to the outside, to a PC, but not during games. 
and cognition is connected to the camera and this motion is connected to uh, a software module that's provided with the now, it's called the device control manager that delivers at 100 hertz uh, sensor data and accepts commands. And, uh, and one goal of our system is to keep these 30 hertz and the 100 hertz because otherwise we may miss things in the world because not, not all images contain information and uh, well the robot may fall down, fall down if we uh, do not keep the 100 hertz. So, and all this is executed on a geode processor, that's a 500 megahertz uh, Intel compatible uh, processor. So there's not much computing power on this system. So, perception. Um, this is what the now sees while playing soccer. This video is uh, already two years old. Back then the now still had red and blue uh, color on them. And um, I mean, you see some things in this image, but it's also quite confusing because actually you can imagine as, as human, you immediately see, okay, well, the camera moved around. Um, you need this information to, to actually use the, the things you see in the image. So that's uh, from our simulator. And there you see that the, what the robot sees is actually a very small part of the world. So in one image, there's really not that much information that you can use. So the, the robots have to look around quite a lot. So it's not like with humans where we have 180 degrees vision. So that's uh, something like in diagonal it's, it's uh, 56 degrees. So we, we need to know where the camera looks at to interpret the images. And we have to find things in the images. So we detect wall, lines, um, goal posts and the ball um, and you might have seen there was a, a, a purple area marked below that's uh, where we expect to see our own body. So the body is white and, and with these old robots there were also red parts and uh, so we don't want to confuse our own body with field lines and the red parts with the ball. So we just exclude that because we can use the joint angles that we can measure to see, to, to compute where our own body will appear in the images and we just remove that section from uh, the further process processing. So and if we put that together, so where we look at and what we have seen in the images, we can basically project this back and see, well, we saw a center circle there, there's the ball, there are field lines, the goalpost, etc. So we know where these things are relative to the robot. And that's basically what perception does. So the now doesn't have very much computing power. And in addition, it's even very slow in accessing the image data. So what we do to process the images is we do not process the whole images, but we use a grid. And so we have these uh, vertical lines here. And on these vertical lines, we, we run through them and classify the pixels. Um, and classifying means that we have a big table with, which says, oh, well, this combination of the three color cha channels, the now uses uh, YUV, is, 
this is green, and uh, this combination is orange, etc. And this can still be done this way because uh, in this leak, the, uh, yeah, the lighting conditions uh, have to be constant. So you arrive somewhere, you calibrate it, and then you can use these mappings. And then we search on these lines, we find green uh, parts, white parts, orange parts, etc. And we combine the white parts to field lines and uh, match them with, with real lines. We, uh, and uh, we detect orange spots and we use them as starting points for so-called specialists that start somewhere where something orange was found and then on color similarity, that's not uh, using this uh, color mapping anymore, we expand from that starting point to different directions to find the whole ball. And so this is an example of a completely classified image and you see there's very little orange here in the, in the ball but still the system is able to find the, the whole ball because it finds some orange here and then says, well, okay, this was orange and then based on color similarity finds the, the remaining ball. And for the goal posts, we use uh, horizontal scan lines and the idea is there is one information I have in the images that's the so-called horizon. The horizon is the plane that's parallel to the ground and on the height of the camera. And I can, for example, say, well, the, the ball will always be below the horizon, the field will always be below the horizon, so it doesn't make much sense to search above the horizon for field lines and stuff like that and for the ball. But the goalpost will always intersect with the horizon because they are higher than the, the now. So we search here on the horizon, find uh, small segments that might be the goalposts, and then we search up and down. And uh, then there are a lot of sanity checks, like the, the, they all have to have the same width and they have to be above each other and things like that. And that's the way we detect the goalposts. And for robots, it's very similar. We find blue or, or pink uh, segments. They are grouped together, then from there, based on color similarity, areas are detected. That's uh, an area is detected that could be the team marker. Then the shape is analyzed to see whether this really can be a team marker. For example, the blue ones, the color of the blue, uh, blue team marker is nearly identical with the goalposts, so we have to use the shape to determine whether this is a, a team marker. And then from that, we search up and down to see whether there is color around it that could be a robot. And uh, if this, this is the case, then we finally search for the foot point so we can later on determine the distance to that robot. And um, the whole image processing, so everything you have seen, is done in four milliseconds on this 500 megahertz uh, proce uh, processor. So I said we search for the foot point for the robots to determine the distance. Um, basically, there are two ways how you can determine to, uh, the distance to objects you have seen in the images. One is based on their size. So when I know how high such a goalpost is and how high it appears in the image and I know the opening angle of my camera, I can determine how far it is away. Actually, for goalposts, it's, also, it's still also necessary to see from, from which 
perspective I watch the goalposts. So I basically I still need to know where the camera currently is. But for the ball, for example, because a sphere always appears the same from wherever you look, you can use size to determine the distance. What we mainly use is um, distance from bearing. So we can, when we know where the camera is in relation to the field plane, so the height and the three rotational angles, then we can, and we found, uh, for example, the foot point of a goal post in the image, we can determine how far that foot point is away. And uh, we mainly use this. We use actually the, the height of goal posts, but not simply the height, but we basically use the angle between the horizon and the upper part and the horizon and the lower part and use that to determine the height because we know that the goal post will be uh, vertical. And uh, for all other objects, we use the bearing. Even for the ball, we, where we could use the distance, we found out that uh, since the camera position is quite high above the, the field, it's actually better to use the bearing to the ball instead of its size because the ball is rather small. So if it's far away, if uh, one pixel difference makes, I don't know, uh, half a meter or so. So we always use the bearings. But uh, to be able to do that, we must be able to determine the pose of the camera relative to the field very precisely. So we must know how the rotational angles are. So this brings me to the area of sensing. Um, from the internal sensors of the now, we can determine quite a lot. So the first thing is uh, the now delivers all the joint angles. So the, not the target joint angles, but the current joint angles. And uh, together with a model of the now where we know how long each limb is and how heavy it is, we can compute the center of mass. So we basically can sum up all these weights and their position, and then we come to the center of mass of the robot, and this is uh, used quite a lot for balancing. So when I know where the center of the ma of mass of the robot is, I, can, uh, I have to use that for, for balancing so that the robot doesn't fall down. So then we detect ground contact. The now has pressure sensors under its feet, uh, which are broken quite often. So we also use the loads on the, joint, uh, on the joints in the legs to determine whether the robot currently has ground contact or not. Why we need that, uh, I will explain later. Then we detect falls. So, and in which direction we fall. So whether the robot lies on the ground or, or not. So if it lies on the ground, it has to stand up again. But even we also detect that the robot is currently falling, so we can protect it from breaking. So we basically, we bring the, the head in a certain position upright while it's falling, and then we switch, uh, uh, lower the stiffness of all joints so that uh, the impact is, is minimized when it falls down. And uh, for robots, it's different than for humans. Humans usually break their bones when they uh, fall. Robots break their joints. So uh, here we have to do different things to protect the robots. And this actually helps a lot. So there's less damage. And then finally, and this is related to the, the camera pose, uh, we estimate the torso pose. So there is some fixed point between the 
hip joint, which is uh, our origin of the robot, and we want to know where this origin is located relatively to the ground plane. And uh, I, I will come to that on the next slide. And, but if you know where this position is, then you can also compute the position of the camera, because there are only two joints in between, and then the camera has a fixed position in the, in the head. And we need that for uh, determining the distance to, to objects. So this torso pose is calculated by a probabilistic method, so-called uh, unscented Kalman filter, where we use forward kinematics, so basically the, the current, uh, currently measured joint angles of all joints in the legs, plus the distances, uh, the offsets between the different uh, joint angles, which normally would be enough to calculate the pos position of, the, of this uh, point in the, in the robot, the torso, um, if we assume that the feet would always be flat on the ground, at least one of them. But it turned out if you're walking faster, they are, they are not. So we also use uh, the gyroscopes, so rotation sensors that measure rotational speed, to, as input for this filter to uh, calculate the real pose in the, uh, of the robot. So, and this basically, um, so we remove all the shaking from these measurements. And uh, gyroscopes are a little bit problematic because, uh, problematic because um, they measure rotational speed, so if the robot is standing still, you would expect them to measure zero, but they have a so-called bias drift, so uh, depending on temperature and stuff like that, they change their measurements. And so we have to continuously re recalibrate them, and we do that by accumulating their measurements over one step cycle, where we assume, okay, over one step cycle, normally this, the, the average uh, rotational speed should be zero, because I move forward, I move backward, and uh, we calibrate them during standing. So that we have um, removed, yeah, we, we compensate for this bias drift. And there where the, is, that's where the ground context comes in, because if somebody picks our robot up and shakes it around, we shouldn't do this calibrating at that moment, because that would be bad, because it, it violates the assumption that the robot is not moving. So, and that's why we need the ground contact. And uh, we have, uh, actually it's uh, three years old, I think we compared our estimation of the torso pose with Aldebaran's estimation, or here it's just the two angles, so pitch and, and roll, and ours is a lot more stable and it's actually also a lot better. And, um, and there are strange measurement drops in, in Aldebaran's, uh, in the values they deliver, so um, there are a lot of problems in the original system. So then, um, to make this even more precise, we have to calibrate a lot. So if you just get it now out of the box and use this torso pause estimation, etc., and forward kinematics, and you put it on a known spot on the field and then project back the field lines into the image, the result might look like this, because um, the camera is not always mounted in the same spot in the now, so sometimes it's a little bit moved. And there's also backlash in the joints, which we at least for the neck joints uh, cannot compensate for. So what we do is that we calibrate this. So we actually add offsets to the 
camera roll and, and pitch and to the overall body roll and pitch. And uh, yeah, we, we now by now we have, I think, implemented two automatic methods. So one with hill climbing, one with, um, one with another approach. Um, but at RoboCups, the students still use the manual method because, uh, I mean, it depends on detecting the field lines correctly. And usually you never have an empty field and there's a lot of noise in there when people walk around. And the human eye is simply better in detecting the real field lines. So they, they still, although uh, sometimes they even implemented the automatic method themselves, they, they still do it manually because they say, well, it's, it's better. So, and uh, now we have rather precise measurements, but we now have to bring together perception and sensing. So, and there's some synchronization required. Uh, before I come to the actual synchronization, there's another problem. The now has a rolling shutter camera, which means that, the, uh, that it exposes pixel by pixel. So, um, the first pixel up there is taken, measured a lot earlier than the last pixel down there. Actually, this is not a, an image from a now, but from another robot, but the effect is the same. So, um, and if you move the camera while taking such a picture, you get effects like this. So, and that means your bearings are wrong. So if you detect something he here and detect something here, they should actually be above each other and uh, you have to compensate for that. For example, if you expect goalposts to be vertical, then you wouldn't accept this as a goalpost here. And the other problem is um, images are taken at one point in time, joint angles are taken at a different point in time, and you have to bring these two together. And we do that uh, by detecting the, uh, the speed of the, uh, of the head motion actually of the whole robot motion by now uh, at 100 hertz and then use the, this speed to interpolate. So we look at the timestamps of the images and the joint angles and uh, also when we have detected something at its position in the image and then we correct these based on, on the time differences and on the, uh, on the speeds um, of the joints. And we do not correct the whole image, that would be far too expensive, but we, we correct the result of the image processing. So if, I, if we find a ball, then we later on say, oh, okay, well, the ball was found at that position somewhere, but according to our correction, it should be shifted a little bit to, that, to the side. And actually, we also calibrated this by using the ball, so we let the robot stand, look left, right, rather quickly, and then we plotted the angle to the ball, and then you can, uh, see that it, it shouldn't be much different whether you look from left to right or right to left. And we got about plus minus one degrees of error by this method. And that may be due because uh, to the reason that the ball is not really circular anymore in the image. So uh, the ball position is not perfect in the image. So, and this brings me to the world modeling part. So we now have distance to all objects we have seen. Um, but they are still noisy. How much calibrating we do, uh, there will be still noise in all these measurements. So, and the idea of, uh, for the world modeling is that we accumulate information over a longer time and use that to improve our, for example, our own position. And this little example here is uh, 
Yeah, it's a very similar similar one is in the uh, in the textbook probabilistic robotics. Uh, this one is for a particle filter, and uh, obviously with a now instead of a robot that recognizes doors. And uh, the idea here is that the robot this now can only walk along this field in one direction, and there are goalposts, and it can only detect whether there is a goalpost in front of it or not, and. Um, it has a belief state about where it currently is, and this is represented by particles, and here the density of the particles tell the, the robot where it actually is. In the beginning, it doesn't know it, where it is, so this is rather distributed randomly. And then it takes a measurement, and it has a model of the world, so it knows where goalposts are. So um, it detects, well, okay, I'm standing in front of a goalpost, and uh, that means that according to my current reading, I can either be somewhere here, somewhere here, or somewhere here. And it uses this information here to modify the weights of this belief state. So it's now more probable to be here, here, or here. And the width of these, usually these are Gaussians, the width of these, uh, um, yeah, these Gaussians here is basically it's, it's called a sensor model. So how you how much you can rely in a reading. Um, so and then two things happened here. One is the first before the robot moved is that this these different weights actually uh, transformed in different density in these this particle distribution by. Uh, drawing a new set of particles, and the drawing is made depending on how, yeah, in, proportional to the weight the particles had. So a, a particle with a high weight has a higher probability of, uh, of being drawn, so it will often be drawn more than once. And uh, particles with smaller probabilities probably get not drawn again. So now there are not more particles here, here, and here as three possible candidates for where the robots are. And then the robot moved a little bit. And this is also applied to the particle set. So all the particles were moved here in a little bit. And we also have something like a, measure, a, a motion model. So we can measure our motion some way, but also these measurements will be wrong or, or not precise. So the particles can also be a little bit distributed here while, uh, while we move them. So we, we don't know how, how exact the movement was. So and then the robot measures the second goalpost here. Again, it could be here, here, or here. And this is integrated as weights into the particle set. So uh, again, it's similar to before. But now you can see that with the, here, there are a lot more particles that now have a higher weight. And so if I do what is called resampling again, so this transformation from weights into density, I now have most particles here. And that's where the robot actually is. So and w although the robot was not able to ever see more than one goalpost, based on that the distance between these two is smaller than the distance between these two, it could determine its position over time. So on the soccer field, the robots do not move in one direction. They actually can move in three directions. They can move forward, sideways, or turn. So we have a 
uh, a three-dimensional particle filter. And um, a small example here. So these are the particles. The blue one is the average of these particles. So that's where the robot would think it's currently located. And uh, yeah, it's now moving towards the, the goal. Actually, there was a kickoff, so it kicked out the ball. Then the ball is now here, and the, the robot is looking at the ball all the time. So that ink introduces a large uncertainty where it currently is, because it, it uh, hasn't seen goalposts, etc., for a long time. And then when it looks up at the goal, they get together again, and it now knows more precisely where it is. So, and uh, yeah, we use this particle filter for localization, actually in the version of an augmented Monte Carlo localization. That means that we not only draw new particles from the previous set of particles, but when the overall weight of the measurements go down, we also introduce new particles that are uh, drawn from observations. So when I see a goalpost, I know, okay, now I'm two meters away from a goalpost, so I can basically draw from one position where I would be two meters away from a goalpost and introduce such a particle into the distribution. And if you do that several times, then you come up with a good uh, new position. So this allows to, uh, to solve the problem of uh, robot um, kidnapping, where a referee picks up your robot and puts it somewhere else. Um, we also use another probabilistic method called a Kalman filter, and we use it after the particle filter, because one problem, we only have 100 particles in our system, and so the position that it's calculated, it's, it's uh, a little bit noisy, because, I mean, I basically I have a uh, I have 100 particles, and I later calculate the average of these 100s, and they move around, so the position shifts a little bit. And in contrast, a Kalman filter uses Gaussians, and it only can uh, represent one peak in such a belief state. And we use, and, and this is mu much more precise, unless the robot is moved somewhere else, so then it doesn't, it cannot cope with that. So we basically, our Kalman filter uh, takes over when um, the post provided by the particle filter is confirmed by several direct observations, and it says, well, okay, now I do not know where I am anymore, when the, the post of the particle provided by the particle filter is too far away. So, and so we have certain times where the Kalman filter is basically providing the position, but whenever a robot is moved or we, for some reason, lost the position, then the particle filter is used to establish a new one. And there are more clean methods to combine these two, but this is probably the most uh, computation time efficient one. So you, it's, it's a very simple one. For the ball, we use, again, we use these Kalman filters. We use six for static balls and six for rolling balls. Here, the problem is four-dimensional. Uh, we don't care about the rotation of the ball, but uh, here we can measure our own motion. For the ball, we have to, to basically also estimate it, so how fast the ball moves. So we uh, use two dimensions for, for position of the ball and two dimensions for speed, and then we, we just have particle filter, uh, um, Kalman filters that are initialized and track the ball for a, uh, for a certain while unless, <coughs> until their predictions are so bad that they are replaced by a new one. So we continuously basically uh, have 12 predictions of the speed and the 
um, motion of the ball. Um, then this now has uh, sonar sensors in its chest, and we use an, a grid to process their, their, uh, their measurements. So in the distance they measure, we basically draw an, an arc in the, in the grid and increase all cells in there. Um, and everything that's closer is, is uh, re reduced. So, and uh, we believe in a measurement when a cell has been increased for three times. So we need three measurements of an obstacle before we really believe it's there. Because there can be mismeasurements, there are other robots that also use sonar on the field, so there's a lot of noise. Uh, it still doesn't, at least this year, it didn't work so well, was our impression, so we have to look into that. But years before, it worked quite well. And there are also very specialized um, models, like uh, the free part of the opponent goal. The opponent goal is something very important in, in uh, soccer. So we model the area where that is not blocked by a robot, for example, the goalkeeper, as a one-dimensional grid. And that's based on the, the largest uh, part of that is where we kick at. So we always have an area in the goal where we say, okay, that's the largest part of the opponent goal, and that's where we, where we kick at. And uh, yeah, this is a little demonstration about how uh, calm, Kalman filters can be used to model, in this case, opponents. So for the opponents, we, we don't know the speed and we do not model them. So we kind of have a lot of, we simply say the measurements are very noisy and so the, uh, these areas here grow very rapidly um, because uh, in contrast to the ball where we look at quite often in the, in the direction, uh, we rarely, we do not track opponents. So we, we, if the camera sees one, we, we have a measurement but we do not try to track them. So we get only very sparse measurements of the opponents, and so we basically assume, yeah, well, they can also walk around quite quickly, as we do, and so we forget them quite easily because the uncertainty becomes very big where they are. And uh, we would need this for path planning, for example. So if we now have models of everything in, in the world, so where are obstacles, and actually referees are also obstacles, so we don't know how to detect referees, but if one is standing in front of a robot, we would still stop in front of uh, that robot. Um, so we, have, we know where the ball is, we know where our teammates are, uh, we know where we are, etc. We have to decide what to do. And we use hierarchical state machines. To, do, to model the behavior of the robot. And the idea of using state machines is um, that you have, sometimes you have to make a decision and keep that decision for a while. So for example, if you have a goalkeeper that's responsible for, uh, or has to go to the ball whenever the ball is inside the penalty box, but it is not going to the ball when the ball is outside to the penalty box, and you have measurements that are noisy, then you have a problem if the ball appears to be inside the penalty box, the goalkeeper starts moving, and then for some reason it now appears that the ball is slightly outside the penalty box. You don't want to, uh, the goalkeeper to immediately go back because then it could be that it always makes a step, goes back and forward and so on. So what you want to have is that once the decision is made to execute a certain, uh, a certain action, 
then you want to keep the decision for a while. So basically, you want to go to the ball when it's inside the penalty box, but if you decided to do that, you will abort this action only if the ball is like 40 centimeters outside the, uh, the penalty box. So to make the behavior more stable. And that's the reason why state machines are so popular for describing behavior. So this is a simple example for a goalkeeper. Actually, it's from the very old Ibo times. So this is a state machine. And it can decide which other state machine is executed after it. So either it's a goalie before kickoff or a goalie playing. And the goal, while the game where the goalie is playing, it can either return to the own goal or it can position itself inside the goal or it can go to the ball or kick, etc. So, and in each cycle, processing cycle, there's basically here would be one pass that's, that's executed. And uh, the system remembers in which state each of these state machines was. And uh, in our current system, there can actually be an execution tree. So you can have more sub state machine executed in each cycle, but the original idea was to have simply one, one path through here. So, and a state machine, for example, this goalie playing looks like that. You have several states. One is the, the initial one, so there you start. And you have transitions to different states. And all these transitions are based on decision trees. So you, you have a one decision. If you are in this state, there is, is, a, uh, is a condition under which you would transfer to this state, etc. So, and for example, this get to ball here has a decision tree. Um, yeah, if the ball is seen and uh, the ball distance is smaller than 15 centimeters, then I would clear the ball. Otherwise, uh, the ball would be too far away and I would return to goal or something like that. And so you have transitions to, to uh, states here. And that's basically how the whole behavior is built in our system. So uh, soccer is a team game. So um, what do we do to coordinate the robots? Um, we have different roles. So there is, uh, we always have a striker. That's the, the robot. It's the role that, that plays the ball. And one robot, only one single robot has this role at any time, but they can switch between the roles. Then there's a supporter that also goes uh, it's, it's slightly behind the, the striker. There's a defender that stays close to the own goal, and there's the, the goalkeeper. And in some, uh, sometimes there is an attacking goalkeeper. That is when the goalkeeper is playing the ball. And um, usually only the striker, there's one striker, so there's one robot playing the ball, and the, the others keep away. Um, but um, this, even the striker wouldn't go to the ball if the goalkeeper is in its attacking mode, because um, then the, uh, the goalkeeper is the one handling the ball. And um, yeah, there's a lot of role switching. So the robots continuously switching uh, between these roles. Uh, the keeper can only be either attacking or non-attacking, because it's in defined in the rules that the keeper has Basically, it's the only one that could protect the goal. But uh, the other robots can continuously switch. So for example, here, we, we are the blue team. We try to score a goal. Um, the goalkeeper is not really good, but it's doing the right thing for a while. 
So, and behind here, there is our supporter. And now the supporter becomes the striker because now it is the closest robot to the ball. Dribbles the ball out. That's actually intentional because it cannot kick from there. And then tries to score the goal. And now this robot here becomes the striker again. And then it scores the goal. So in basically, uh, in, in, in matters of seconds, they switch their roles. And it's very important um, to have this role switching working very well, because if two ro robots of your own team would go to the ball, they would block each other. And usually, that would be a big disadvantage. Uh, and uh, in general, Everything in, in uh, this team play is not based on negotiation, but it's just based on information each robot provides. So each robot says, well, I'm here. I will take that much of time until I can kick the ball in the direction of the opponent goal. And uh, so each robot knows from each other robot how long it would take that robot to be the striker. And uh, so each robot can decide for itself which its, uh, its own role is. So there is no negotiation that one robot says, well, I'm the striker now. So, but instead, they all have basically the same data, and they can compute for themselves what they do. The little problem is that the data from the other robots is usually older than the data from oneself, because there is wireless transmission uh, between that, and you have to compensate for that. But usually, um, that works quite well. So we have a global world model, so especially a global uh, estimate where the ball is. So even if a robot hasn't seen the ball for quite a while, which often happens for the goalkeeper, because if the ball is behind other robots, the goalkeeper cannot see it anymore, it still knows where the ball is, and it especially knows when the ball was kicked. And uh, we also transmit the position of teammates for pass planning. So uh, for example, we have a path planner. For example, this, we scored a goal, and uh, here this robot has to return to its uh, kickoff position. It's somewhere over there. And it's very difficult with opponent robots because, uh, I mean, they also move, and you don't know where. And, uh, well, and then sometimes even the referee comes in and blocks the way, and so you continuously have to replan. And uh, with our teammates, we, they simply communicate their position. So I even know that there is someone in, standing right behind me, and I can uh, use that information. So it's, it's a lot more difficult to, to walk around opponents than to walk around, own, uh, to walk around teammates, because they just communicate their, their position on the field. And there, we actually have a few joint actions in our team. That's not much. So we, we have. Uh, currently, we have a synchronized ball tracking and searching. So currently, it's uh, the, the striker is the one playing the ball. So in most of the time, it looks on the ball. But sometimes, it has to look up to, to still know where it is on the field. And in that moment, um, all the other players will, will look on the ball. So if the opponent kicks away the ball, even the striker will know that this happened, although it, it doesn't see it. So and. Um, and if no robot knows where the ball is, we have a combined strategy where the robots search for the ball. So we have, a, it's called a field coverage model, 
where each robot communicates, well, I covered this area, which I watched this area, and so we know how long which area of the field hasn't searched in the past. And so and actually robots can move somewhere. And in theory, they would even go to other, to opponent robots to look behind them that, um, to find the ball. Yeah, and then it's, uh, there is kickoff, where we had seven kickoff strategies, and uh, I think we later only used one of them, but we actually had seven with different, and, and so the, the robots while walking to kickoff, they had to, to coordinate which robot moves where. And this is basically done by um, that all robots make a proposal, what they think is the best uh, kickoff motion, and then each robot knows what, what other, another robot had proposed, and they also send their robot number, and they simply, the, the robot with the lowest number wins. So everybody does what the robot with the lowest number currently on the field decides, which usually is the goalkeeper, but the goalkeeper can also be off the field for, because it's damaged or something like that. So, and we had one pass, so from the corner, so from the opponent corner, we, we can pass the ball in, and um, another robot would kick it in. So um, I showed this Xapsel, stuff, and uh, actually this is the behavior of Be Human 2011. And uh, it's 60 state machines, hierarchical state machines. I won't explain that, but it's, so it, it's a compli complicated stuff. So and actually it's, it's more than, it, it's nearly twice as many as uh, the year before, so things get more complex. So now I come to uh, motion control. Um, yeah, the robots have to walk and kick and get up and stuff like that. So uh, I will talk a little bit about walking and the walking also contains kicking. Um, then they, the robots have to stand up and uh, this video was taken in 2008, in, I think in, in, in the beginning of June and our student uh, Judith Müller developed this stand-up motion and later um, Aldebaran watched the video and they re-implemented it for their, their new version 3, I think. So, and now everybody has this, this get-up motion. There is a 2011 version of standing up, which you see here. So, and it's actually, it's, it's faster and, and much more stable because uh, here when the, when, if you do this uh, several times, the robot will fall down after a while. And, and this one uh, doesn't use the head and what, whatever can break in the robot. So it's, uh, I think it's currently the best get-up motion. And these kinds of motions are very primitive because it's just a sequence of fixed joint angles. So there is actually, there's no science involved. So you basically you have, um, yeah, you, you'd say, okay, well, this set of joint angles and it will take that amount of time to the next set of joint angles and that, uh, that's it. Um, unfortunately, these get-up motions are also most popular if you show the robots to an audience, so they always want to see how it's getting up, although it's so primitive. And yeah, and we, we also use these kind of special actions so that are hard-coded for a goalkeeper moves, so the dive is actually such an action. And there's head control, so um, we have an automatic mode where we scan interesting points on the field so we know what we use for localization. So we look, assuming that we know where we are, we look at points that are interesting for localization and we try to continue to the ball as much as uh, possible. 
And there are also some hard-coded modes, so like look in front of your feet. And, uh, and these are used in behavior control. There's a lot of hacking in there so that sometimes it's, it's hard-coded what the robot does in a certain situation. So, and it brings me to walking. Uh, this is actually the most complex stuff in our system, and I won't say very much about it. So, uh, yeah, walking is basically getting from one feet to the, to the other. And uh, we use a model that had already been, been de developed in 2001, uh, where you use an inverted pendulum as model, and uh, actually a, a number of them, because you basically have a pendulum that has its base in the foot, and uh, the top is in the center of mass. And then you model one step as such an inverted pendulum. And then when the pendulum returns back to the middle of the robot, you initialize the next pendulum, and it swings to the side and swings back, and then you have a next pendulum. So each step is modeled as a pendulum. And uh, in, in this special case of a 3D linear inverted pendulum mode, you assume, which is actually wrong for a pendulum, that the top of this pendulum would move on a plane, but it makes the, the equations a lot uh, easier. So basically, this equation here uh, models the position of the top of the pendulum, uh, and this one models the speed of the top of the pendulum. And if you use it uh, you'd say, well, okay, the, the zero time point uh, zero is where the pendulum has its maximum to the outside, and you know at this point the speed is, is zero, you can even forget the second part here. And, uh, well, this here is gravity, and this is the height of this plane above the ground. And this is used to model the, yeah, the motion of the center of mass through space. And since the center of mass is something that moves inside the robot, because if I move my arm, I move my center of mass, um, everything is quite dynamic. And uh, to, yeah, we, we kind of have to um, use these equations to actually move, um, and we determine the, the, the duration of a, of a step. Um, we, we adapt the, the duration of a step to, um, to use this equation. So basically, we, we determine the point in time where one pendulum takes over and when it basically the next one is used. So we determine when to start a step and when to end a step. And we assume that one, the next step will immediately start after the, the first one is, has ended. So there is no so-called double support phase where both feet are on the ground. I mean, in, in reality, there are both touching the ground at some point in time, but this uh, moment is, is, uh, is very short. And uh, yeah, we basically determine the timing from sideways swinging, and then we adapt the parameters. We solve uh, these equations for forward motion that is desired. I mean, you basically you say how fast you want to go. Um, and this is used there. And um, we wouldn't be able to go very quickly with this uh, system if we wouldn't use the, the IMU, so the inertial sensor measurements for balancing. We basically, we use the torso pose for that. So from these equations, we can determine where the torso should be, because the torso, we can always determine the 
position of the torso relative to the center of mass. And we, can, we have this model of the torso pose, and we can compare both. And then we can use that to adapt the parameters of the equations so that we can compensate for, for, uh, for uh, disturbances, such as in another robot pushing us. And I mean, there's backlash in the joint. So it, actually, I think without IMU-based balancing, we wouldn't be able to walk faster than 10, 10 centimeters per second. And so we now we reach um, nearly 30. So and if you do that, um, you get the position of the foot relative to the, to the uh, center of mass from, from the pendulum directly. Uh, but you are quite flexible what you do with the other foot that is not the supporting foot. So that's going forward. And uh, usually we use some trajectory that's uh, relative to the, to the movement of the supporting foot. So basically, it does nearly the same. But we can also use predefined motions, so we can do something else like kicking during one step phase. So instead of moving it forward, we can introduce a kick in between. So and then we use uh, inverse kinematics to, from, uh, to get back to the joint angles we need. And this is a little bit complicated with the now because um, it has this uh, rotated hip joint that's also one joint for two legs. So. Um, but one, a student of mine has figured out the mathematics to solve the inverse kinematics. And we later, we use, uh, calculate that two times because we calculate the inverse kinematics for both legs. And then if the equations come up with a different joint angles for the joint joint and the hip, <laughs> um, then we introduce an yeah, we basically distribute this error on, on both legs by introducing a, a rotational joint that doesn't exist in the, in the head, so basically a yaw joint. And then we can say, uh, say okay, well, in, instead of having an error here in the hip, I just turn that foot a little bit more. And um, that's how this is solved. So yeah, um, the current walk that we used is now uh, yeah, we can reach 31 centimeters per second. It always depends on the, on the parameters. Uh, sideways, we move 12 centimeters per second. That's, I think that's faster than the original now walk is moving forward. Um, that's in our lab. And here you see the balancing in action. Uh, at the RoboCup, we turned that down because um, it looks nice if one robot is doing that. It's really bad if several robots in a crowd do that. So usually they all fall down. So we had at, at RoboCup, we had a detector that detects instability, and it, they just stopped. I think they fall down more often when they were alone on the field by that way, but it looks better. And also, this balancing can quite confuse the referees if they try to catch a robot in, in one situation, and the robot starts moving very strangely. It's not a good feeling. So, uh, okay, that was one too much. No, I will skip this one. So we, we have a software framework, and that's very important, but I skipped that. Um, what I wanted to say is a little bit most of the system, well, that's science and engineering, but um, RoboCup is a competition. And uh, 
You can arrive with a perfect system and still lose if you are not doing the right things on site. So we have a rather strict team organization at RoboCups. Otherwise, we are really quite relaxed. So everybody is allowed to do whatever he or she wants to do. But if we are at the competition, everything has to be organized quite well. So uh, we have people for managing the robot repair status and uh, chain charging batteries and stuff like that. And there are people who really know which robot has which damage and they pick the robots for the game. So because they know their, their robots. Um, we are continuously calibrating. So whenever a robot is returning from repair, it's all joints are calibrated, the camera position is calibrated. We never see other teams do that. So I don't know, so, but we do that. And uh, maybe we now won all games, but at least five goals ahead in the last three championships. So it can't be that bad to do that. So. Um, yeah, then you have to, to get the code on the robot. You can make so many er errors when doing that. So we also try to automate that because we now have script that sends one set of code to all robots. Uh, we have one person in a game that makes the decisions. It's not important whether they're all good or bad, but it's a lot better than several people shouting at each other and not getting to any decision. Then we have people for handling substitution. So if a robot is broken, to put another robot on the field. And uh, we also have one person standing behind the game controller operator, whether the game controller is clicking on the right buttons. So that's <laughs> <laughs> And we always write protocols during test games and real games. And we, we also do movies of the games. And later on, we can see, well, what happened there? And, and then we can discuss it, what, what happened um, in the game. And after the game, yeah, we, we discuss what uh, happened during the game and, and decide who does which change. We do a lot of test games. So you can develop perfect methods. They work well with one robot on an empty field, but they do not work well if you have seven other robots on the field. And three of them might be from your own team and, uh, and, and four opponents. So you have to do a lot of testing to see how things really work. And uh, for example, we never use, well, we ne not never use, but we, we have the policy that code that wasn't used in a test game, so really tested in a, in a game, uh, shouldn't be used in a real game. So at this RoboCup, we played one day with an old code, code base while developing a lot of new stuff uh, because there was no time to do test games during the day. So we had to do the next the test game in the evening. So we didn't change anything for, for a whole day. Because it's very easy to introduce a minor error in a system that breaks everything. So you have to be sure that everything is working. So yeah, we always have a real list of features that will be tested so that people know what to look at when they see the test game. We can visualize um, what the robots tell each other, and they basically tell, tell each other most of the stuff, so where they think they are, where the ball is, and, and stuff like that. So, and, and also joint heats, so you can, that you don't ruin a robot during a test game. Uh, we do real refereeing uh, during test games, so it's, it's like a real game. And the only change we do at home is that the goalkeeper only indicates the direction where it would have dived 
because to, to save the robot. So if it's always jumping, really, then, then the robot breaks quite easily. So we have it, I think it points to that direction, or it says something like left. And at the competition, we always do a test kickoff 30 minutes before the game. So, and if that went well, nothing is touched anymore at the robots. So 30 minutes, be human kicks off. And uh, this is so obvious that um, the team that based their code on our code this year from, from Taiwan, they also did the same procedure. So they arrived 30 <laughs> minutes early on the field, did a test kickoff and let the robot score a goal. And if you see where the localization is working because they walk to their initial positions, you see um, that they see the ball because they kick a goal and so you can see a lot of things in such a test kickoff. I mean, it only takes a minute to on the field, basically, but it, uh, actually it takes a lot of preparation. But then you're ready and you know the system works. So, okay, then I come to my conclusion. Um, yeah, basically Robocop is about um, doing the right things. So we use grid-based vision because it's fast and you can use some, yeah, early in the processing you can use knowledge about the world, so where goalposts would appear in the image and stuff like that. Um, yeah, we use textbook methods for the whole world modeling stuff, so the, all these things are in probabilistic robotics. The only thing is you have to implement them well and have to adapt them to the problem, but basically the, the code is, is, is exactly how it's written in the book. Um, yeah, we use now the hierarchical state machine approach for 10 years, so, and we haven't found anything better yet, so um, I think that's quite good. And we worked a lot on, on, on uh, walking. So one advantage we always had was we had the better walk, and uh, now for, for three years, I guess. And now we started to integrate kicks into the walk, and I think that's the direction in which we want to go so that there isn't a kick engine. We also have a kick engine anymore, but it's just the walk, and the walk is also able to kick and to dribble, hopefully. Yeah, and the other thing is that you, yeah, you have to do the things right. So um, that might be sometimes even more important. So you can use a simple method, and if you implement it very well, it may be better than the complicated method. It theoretically should be better, but you can't get it to work that well. So uh, we believe in keeping the 30 hertz, 100 hertz, so the maximum speed you can achieve, because then we get all the data uh, that there is. Uh, synchronization and calibration is very important, so that all the perceptions we get are as good as they can, as, uh, as they can be. And we, um, yeah, we ensure the overall system performance to, through realistic test games. So, Finally, it's, it's about, not about these, the individual methods, but it's about building the whole system and it has to work together. So you can have a perfect walk or a perfect perception if you have, a, on the other hand, have a very bad world modeling or, or behavior control or whatever, then uh, that the individual method won't help you. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Thomas. That's an excellent talk, and uh, the results of that in terms of the outcomes in the games are, are, are clear enough. So we have time for questions, and I think in terms of timing, we'll just cut the demo down slightly in terms of time. So questions, comments?
Thank you, Harry Esmond from uh, DCU. Uh, just interested to know, when you first started um, in the competition, how would you compare how your robot functions the first year round compared to what it was now? How did you initiate the whole process? Uh, okay, I really started in 2001 with the IBOs, and uh, they didn't work very well. I recognized this when we entered the competition. So my first game at RoboCup was against a team from Australia, RunSwift, and we lost 11-0. So, um, and it took us quite a while to figure out what's really important. So they had these test procedures very early. For example, they all only did tests that always ended with scoring a goal. So we all, all now also do that. So um, we had it quite easy in 2009 when we entered the league because we had a humanoid team before. We weren't very good in humanoid league we, because we had very weak robots and hardware matters a lot there. But we had a complete humanoid system. And uh, we improved a lot when we entered the, the NAO league. Um, but actually we were quite surprised in 2009 how much problems all the other teams had. Because uh, the, most of the other teams came from the eyeball and two-legged walking is actually quite different from four-legged walking. Um, yeah, and, and we always have, I mean, you never know how it will turn out when you when you prepare in your own lab. So, um, because, I mean, you don't know how the others play. And, uh, yeah, we, we are always surprised how, how it looks at the World Championship. So, um, I mean, you, now you, you see that the, um, the teams play at the local opens, and this year, well, at that point in time, we knew we were the best team for that point in time. So, but there were still two to three months to the World Championships, and you you don't know what teams do in between. But, um, I mean, I have videos for how the different the finals looked in 2008, 2009, 2010, but uh, I'm already, I think I was five minutes too long already, so I, I didn't include them in, into the talk. But you see a clear progress, a lot of progress. It's really uh, amazing work. I'm just really uh, ex extremely interesting. I, I wanted to get your take, if, if uh, like perhaps a difficult question, but how do you balance the sort of progress on some of the core difficult challenges in robotics and AI versus the things you need to do to succeed in the competition? You know, the painstaking, you know, calibration and and just sort of. Uh, and, and so, do you think that RoboCup is maturing to the point that, like with the, some of the common infrastructure being more taken care of, that, that some of this sort of more generic pro progress is what's, what it's going to take to keep having the, the best team in the world? Uh, I think you have, if you can focus on, on one problem, um, you can have a lot of more progress than in RoboCup. I mean, we basically are an undergraduate team. So we have some, we have a lot of publications and stuff like that, but it's basically, especially with the German team, because we had many people and there were uh, several PhD students in there, and now we currently only have one. Um, so it's actually, yeah, it, it, the, the part that makes you perform well takes most of the time, I think. 
with simple methods. So um, I think uh, RoboCup is more about developing the whole systems than developing, uh, doing real progress in, in individual robotics methods. So because we don't use, I think we, we don't have anything cutting edge innovative in our system that isn't a couple of years old. So it's, it's just implemented well and we more make it work together. So, and, and for example, last year we had a, a head control where we use the particle distribution uh, to determine where to look at to improve the, um, yeah, to, to improve localization. So basically, um, and this had been done on a Pioneer, I think, a couple of years back, but back then it took, I don't know, the, the, the robot would stop, compute the stuff and continue to play, uh, to, to, to explore. And I think it would stop for 20 seconds or so, and we did it in three milliseconds. So. That's basically the contribution of RoboCup. So you do not do a lab experiment anymore, but you do things that can work in a whole system in real time. I think there can be sort of. I think there can be a feedback loop. I love your video when you, the sort of image of what the robot sees connected to the simulator. When you see how little of the world it sees, and this notion of uh, how do you control where to look, and how do you sort of model what you're not currently seeing but expect to still be, still be there. And I, and I think that it would be great to have like a feedback loop to, to identify some of these more like issues of how do you, integrating the perception control with, with, with all the other pieces. I think there's sort of fundamental, there's, there's good PhD theses to do there. Okay, well, look, uh, maybe one last question, and then we'll get on to the... Very quick question. Uh, let's say that you now switch to another university, and let's say now you're building from the scratch team. Uh, maybe you know weakness of your approach here. Maybe would you be able to bring uh, you know, a new system that is maybe more simple than this, but maybe it will work better, or maybe <laughs> would you go within the yeah. same road? Okay. Um I think part of our success is how RoboCup is embedded in our curriculum. So in Bremen, we have, the students have to do, in, in computer science, two-year projects. So there are different topics on that, but we basically get 10 to 20 students to, do, to work on, on, uh, on a topic for two years with one-third of their time. So, and I think that's a precondition to do this with undergraduates because, I mean, they, they are not as good as PhD students, but they can spend a lot of time on this stuff. So we, and, and we are faced with a similar problem every two years because we get new students. So, and they need a while until they get into the system. I'm not sure whether you can really build a much simpler system that does the same. So, I mean, the, the whole, we are now four years into, into that league and yeah, I, I guess you have to be that complex to be that good. So, and it, it's even getting more complex. So we now will get a new version of the now which has more computing power. So we can, yeah, we can do more, more interesting stuff, uh, do some things more cleanly out of the book maybe, or yeah. So for example, the, the next step in the league will be uh, probably 
that they are, the two goals will have the same color. So there is no distinguishable feature on the field anymore that tells you in which direction to play. So you know when you come to the field, on, that's your side, but after that, and, and that will in, result in a lot of problems. So there, there will be more on goals. So. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but people will start to track things in the environment that are not in the field model. Currently, we don't use anything that's not written in the rules. So we only use the objects that are, of which we know that, that will be there. At some point in time, you have to learn things. So you put the robots on the field. I mean, even if you arrive in the competition and there is some color in the ceiling or so, um, and so that can tell you, well, okay, that's, that's the one direction that would help, but nobody has uh, done this so far in RoboCup. Or even just to what, whatever, track faces or so, so that you can see when the, your robot rotates on the spot without recognizing it. And uh, so there, there will be, uh, I think, there will, the, the systems will become more, more complex. I mean, we currently have um, like 70 modules in the system that do different things from complex things like, I mean, most of the image processing is in one module, but there are other modules that are very small that basically it's something like that predicts where a rolling ball will stop. So that that's one representation of one module that it computes. So basically that the robot, if one robot kicks, then another robot knows, okay, I have to walk there instead of walking to the direction where it currently sees the ball. And, and between recognizing all lines and uh, on the field and, um, and such a simple thing, um, yeah, there are currently 70 modules, I think. And that's a big system already, and, and there will be more. So, I don't know how long we can do that with uh, undergraduates because uh, for them it's a really huge system. So it's currently it's about 200,000 lines of code. And you have to understand a certain part of it to be able to contribute something useful. <laughs> so thanks again, Thomas. I think as an outsider I could say that uh, in terms of our observations, both the range of things that the team is doing and the quality of what is being done has improved every year significantly. So let's, let's thank Thomas once again. <laughs>